Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am coming to you from Palo Alto, California, a room high atop the 101 highway, watching the traffic go in both directions on a sunny day. Uh, I am delighted to be joined today on this special episode of Deep State Radio by Professor Lawrence Tribe of Harvard Law School, uh, author of many, many books, a leading legal scholar in the United States, and for the purposes of this discussion, most recently the author of an op-ed piece in the Washington Post called Impeach Trump, but don't necessarily try him in the Senate. Uh, Larry, welcome and thank you for joining us. Delighted to be with you. So I think the place to start, and by the way, I wanna let everybody in the audience know that Rosa Brooks, um, who normally joins us for all these discussions, um, will try to join us, but she's currently in an airplane circling Miami airport and should she land, um, she will join this conversation, but we will forge on without her. Um, why don't we talk a little bit? I, the reaction to your op-ed has been um, extremely enthusiastic, I think in part because everybody feels something must be done, but there's a lot of people who are hesitant to do anything. Uh, and I think you offer a path that draws from uh, history and from the Constitution. Maybe you could Describe it briefly, and we can take it from there. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, last year, I wrote a book called To End the Presidency, The Power of Impeachment. And I looked at many of the difficulties of the impeachment process, how important it is not to use it as a substitute for simply expressing one's regret about the results of an election, not to use it in political ways, and to be very cautious. But as the evidence is mounted, and I've personally concluded that it is far past time to begin a serious inquiry into whether this president has committed impeachable offenses, which I think he has, um, I began to sense that the country was in a state of terrible paralysis. I mean, it's, of course, not news that we are deeply divided, that the Senate is particularly dysfunctional, that the majority leader of the Senate has been proud of calling himself kind of the hatchet man, the place where legislative activity dies. And as a result of that, understandably, Speaker Pelosi and a circle of people around her, despite growing pressure, have resisted moving down the impeachment path for fear that it ends in an absolute dead end where the Senate will do nothing, will not hold a trial, if it does, it will be a whitewash. And it seems to me that that has given such short shrift to the power of the House of Representatives, as well as its duty 
that I did some research into what the House of Representatives can do on its own, quite apart from the Senate. Of course, in the Nixon case, it was clear that nothing ever got to the Senate. It didn't even get to the floor of the House. The Judiciary Committee of the House gave Richard Nixon a chance to express his side of the case. He declined to appear personally, but he had a lawyer, James St. Clair, represent him. And that became really an adversary hearing that resulted not just in a referral. What was going to go to the floor of the House was a verdict, a verdict finding Richard M. Nixon guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. Didn't get to that because he resigned. But going all the way back to John Adams in 1800, who got himself deeply embroiled in a controversy over extraditing an American citizen who had become involved in a, a, a contretemps a, a, on a, a British vessel, all the way back to that time and through the House reprimand of President Buchanan in 1860, the House of Representatives has realized that it is not simply like a grand jury which can hand an indictment over for trial. It has the possible function of reaching its own conclusions and embodying them in a formal, not just censure of the president, but a finding that the president is guilty of various serious abuses. And what I believe the impeachment inquiry that ought to begin today should have begun before today, um, and I'll come back to what difference it makes that you call it an impeachment inquiry. What I, what I believe that inquiry should do is move toward possible impeachment, articles of impeachment, trial in the Senate, maybe move national public opinion as witnesses like Don McGahn and his chief assistant, Annie McDonald, and Hope Hicks and others are brought to the House to testify under oath. But at the very end, it has to realize there is an off-ramp could decide at the end not to vote articles of impeachment, which the Senate could take up simply to shred in the McConnell shredder, but to end in a condemnation of its own, which would be a kind of scarlet eye that the president would have to carry with him into the reelection campaign. So I've argued that it's a big fallacy to assume that if the House does its constitutional duty, which I think everyone agrees at this point, is the duty to inquire into impeachable offenses, that somehow it will do that at the price of the presidency in 2020. We don't know what the political future holds, but when we're uncertain, we should do the right thing. And in this case, there's good reason to think that the right thing is also a politically sensible thing to do. So in my op-ed, which, as you say, seems to have been making the rounds in Washington, uh, I outlined an approach that takes advantage of the powers of the people's house early in our history called the grand inquest of the nation. Well, I think, you know, you bring up a really interesting point um, on several levels. You bring up several interesting points, but, but on a historical sense, if, if we look back at history, um, while impeachment has happened a number of times, both with regard to presidents and with regard to those holding other offices, it often doesn't result in a conviction in the Senate. It, it didn't with Clinton, it didn't with Nixon, it didn't with Andrew Johnson. Uh, the first impeachment case was against a senator, actually, William Blunt. Uh, but because he left the Senate before the Senate's part of the trial took place, 
They determined they had no jurisdiction. They didn't. They didn't deal with it. Uh, uh, the, the 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 case of uh, um, uh, uh, Justice um, uh, Chase, Chase I, I guess, that followed yes, that. Yes, it was Samuel Chase. Right. Samuel Chase, um, which was a, a purely political impeachment pushed by Jefferson. Same thing. So, I mean, the, the, there are are more incidents of, of people of attempted impeachments than there are of actual convictions. And yet, in all of those cases, we remember what happened. It had a, a severely negative consequence. And I don't believe any president has ever been uh, impeached or considered seriously for impeachment and subsequently won re-election. Well, not only that, no, no president. In fact, yeah, there have been nine incumbent presidents who were on the receiving end of a, of a potential or agreed upon resolution that would censure or condemn them. And no such president was elected to office following even a debate over censure. But there have been a number of successful impeachments, mostly of lower court judges. And in the most dramatic of them, also, as it happens, involving someone named Nixon, Walter Nixon, in that most dramatic of them, the Supreme Court said that the Senate so-called trial, which consisted simply of a reference to a committee, um, could not be challenged by Judge Nixon because it was simply not up to the court to decide whether the Senate had discharged its sole duty to try impeachments. The Constitution says that the Senate has the sole power to try an impeachment case. Well, if the Senate can decide what counts as a, an impeachment trial, then surely the House can decide what constitutes a, an impeachment process. And for the House to decide that what an impeachment inquiry should lead to might or might not be a trial in the Senate is perfectly within the House's authority. Now, there are arguments that the Republicans threw up against that kind of possibility when it came to the purely partisan attempt to get rid of William Jefferson Clinton. That impeachment effort, which was ill-conceived from the beginning, was going to be offset by a possible off-ramp of censure. And the Republicans, to avoid that, argued that it was unconstitutional for the House to undertake to censure a sitting president. That argument happily led to a dissent by none other than Gerald Nadler, and it was not a solid argument. It was an argument based on some pretty strained readings of the Constitution about the limits on the powers of the House of Representatives. But one of the most interesting debates on the floor of the House involved John Adams at a time when the people who were involved in the debate were themselves among the Constitution's framers. The question was whether Adams had to be impeached if you thought it was wrong for him to extradite an American citizen, a sailor accused of mutiny on a British warship, or whether a lesser remedy than removal from office might be appropriate, a remedy that would simply condemn Adams for giving in to the British, just as we now have a president who has apparently given in to the Russians, among other foreign adversaries. And that debate on the floor of the House was very seriously conducted, and in the end, the side that said the House has intermediate measures it can take. It doesn't have to refer a president for a Senate trial and possible removal. It can engage in its own conclusions. That prevailed. 
uh, and the full house voted finally 65 uh, 61 to 35 i think to defeat the resolutions that would have condemned adams but they concluded with virtually no dissent that they had the power to do it and it is that power that i think congress should seriously consider exercising now rather than making the grim reaper of the Senate the ultimate arbiter of whether we have a president who is above the law. Well, I want to come back to this point about the net effect of such an investigation and their options. But wasn't Andrew Jackson censured? Well, Andrew Jackson was, but that was by the Senate. Some people have tried to argue that the power of the Senate to censure someone, and it was a censure that was later revoked, that that power is somehow greater than the House. But I don't believe it. I think that the power of the Senate to censure Jackson, something he took very seriously and worked mightily to undo, that that power also is a power that belongs to the House. So so you're right, David. As an historical matter, one body of the Congress can censure not only its own measures, uh, its own members, but members of the executive branch. But I, I, I hesitate just to use the word censure, because that sounds like a slap on the hand. If a reprimand or a condemnation accompanies a solemn finding that the president is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. And if those are spelled out, and if those high crimes and misdemeanors that happen also to be violations of the federal criminal code of the kind this president has almost certainly committed in spades, that kind of resolution is way more than a slap on the wrist. It is a solemn verdict following a fair adversary hearing, and it will carry a great deal of weight. Among other things in history, I mean, if if you ask, what would it mean for the things this president has done, welcoming and inviting the intervention of a hostile foreign power to become president, accepting the help of that power, then in many ways that were concluded by over a thousand federal prosecutors, former federal prosecutors of both parties to be federal crimes, trying to cover it up, and now stiff arming the Congress. If all of that is not impeachable, then the impeachment power is basically nothing. It's ripped out of the Constitution. And it was vital to the framers that it be there, that we not have to wait till the end of a four-year term to get rid of a president who is dictatorial in inclination and who violates his oath and who thinks of himself as above the rule of law. Right. Well, I mean, just, just, you know, just wait till 2020 have forgotten that we have a constitution, you know, that provides a remedy that is supposed to work without waiting. Well, you know, you bring up a very good point because early on, the people who were running the government were the people who were involved or close to the involvement of the Constitution. And they used terms like impeachment on a regular basis. In fact, for something else that I had been researching, uh, you know, it struck me that the very first president who anybody had ever called for the impeachment of was actually Washington around the Jay Treaty. And it was called for by Thomas Jefferson. And you, you, you had impeachment talk and impeachment hearings uh, from the very beginning of the republic. And and when you look at some of the cases that have been brought uh, in the judicial instances that you mentioned, where people have been removed from the bench, I, I noticed that there were a couple instances where people were removed 
uh, for intoxication on the bench, uh, you know, I mean, which is not quite the same as, you know, collaborating with, you know, a foreign adversary or obstructing justice. Um, and, and, and so it suggests that this Article One um, power, so something that was mentioned at the very top of the Constitution, uh, was something that they felt was necessary and that they were not hesitant about introducing. That's right, although I would be myself a little hesitant about extrapolating from what it takes to impeach a federal district judge, uh, of whom there are many, to what it should take to seriously consider impeaching and removing a sitting president. I mean, that's a big deal by any definition. And it's a, a particularly big deal that we ought not to make light of by simply talking impeachment all the time. I mean, it is true that there was talk of impeaching George Washington and at the very beginning of the Republic, impeachment as a term was flung around lightly. The I word was not so radioactive. Much more recently, it kind of receded until the Nixon presidency, and then it became a more common thing, and it became something that was talked about with respect to even George H.W. Bush. Um, occasionally, people would talk about impeaching Obama. One of the points made in, in the book to end a presidency that I wrote with, with Joshua Matz is that impeachment talk should not become too loose. It becomes like a matter of crying wolf. If we talk impeachment whenever we find a president disgusting or find his policies terrible and use the impeachment power as a political and a partisan weapon rather than a weapon to preserve the republic and the rule of law, then all impeachment efforts are going to be doomed the way the Clinton one was. And we will lose, for all practical purposes, the ability to use that power when it's truly and existentially essential, as I think it is now. So let me tell you a story. A uh, few years back, we were trying uh, to figure out what to give the 100 leading global thinkers that Foreign Policy Magazine honors every year. I was the the editor of Foreign Policy Magazine back then, and there were a lot of people who came in with clever ideas. And then somebody came in with this amazing little globe uh, that rotated, uh, that was powered by light. You know, there's certain technology they've gotten that the light comes through the window and it turns when exposed to ambient light. So it's, it's, it's almost kind of magical. And uh, the instant we saw it, we said, well, for leading global thinkers, this is the perfect award, and we gave it to all of the leading global thinkers that year, and it was hugely well-received. Um, and um, uh, I, I, I like them so much that I, I actually have a couple of them in my house. I collect maps, and um, I thought this was a kind of a cool new way to sort of look at the world. And now I'm really happy that Mova Globes has become a sponsor of Deep State Radio. I mean, I don't, didn't know these people, but I had this product. Um, and they're, you know, they're a kind of perfect gift for anybody who is, you know, a deep state nerd who's interested in the world. Um, they're, you know, compact and beautiful and kind of magical. And, you know, you can get them antique terrestrial looking or they have famous artwork. They also have some very, very cool globes uh, that are celestial, different planets out there. 
Um, and because they are now reaching out to you, the listeners here at the DSR Network, if you go to www.movaglobes.com slash deep state and you enter a coupon code deep state, you'll get 10% off on the Mova Globes and have a great present of something great to have in your house, something great to watch as you're listening to deep state radio and you're imagining the earth turning and all these horrible things happening on it. This will uh, uh, comfort you uh, in some ways. So uh, we welcome Mova Globe as a sponsor to Deep State Radio, and we encourage all of you to go and take a look at www.movaglobes.com slash deep state. Well, I also think, you know, you make a good point about the the, the 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 options for structuring this thing and and this point about Nixon having been allowed representation or to present his case and which makes the 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 deliberation seem much fairer but another aspect of this is the 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 bounds of this investigation need not be drawn to the same lines as the bounds of the Mueller report and absolutely. so absolutely i mean absolutely Go ahead. No, no. I, well, you you you're intuiting the question, which is, you know, I mean, sh- sh- the, the the Mueller report was dealing with one case, Russian interference. It ended up dealing with obstruction because there was obstruction in that case. But there are a host of other issues, whether it's federal elections violations or tax law violations or or uh, abuse of power violations or um, you know other sorts of things uh, where. It would seem that 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 an investigation was warranted and has yet to take place. That's right. I mean, the counterintelligence investigations with which all of this began are still ongoing and really need to be pushed forward by Adam Schiff's House Intelligence Committee, as well as by the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee and the violations of law in the Southern District of New York. It wasn't just campaign finance violations, but it was violations clearly knowing violations, using hush money to silence people who would have told truths that the president rightly or wrongly thought would make it harder for him to become president. I mean, serious crimes across the spectrum. And as everyone now, I think, knows, everyone you know who's a serious scholar of the subject, it doesn't have to be a violation of the federal criminal laws to be an impeachable offense. When the president violates the emoluments clauses and is on the take, really, with money from foreign governments, some of them hostile, and when his son-in-law, as we have now learned, is himself also the recipient of various lavish foreign financial streams, the American people have no way of knowing whether the president or his team, who are in violation of the foreign emoluments clause, are in fact pushing American policy in directions that hurt the American people, not protecting the 2020 election from further interference, not only by Russia, but perhaps by China and by North Korea, and ultimately enhancing their own bottom lines rather than the bottom line of the ordinary American family. I mean, it's a lot of these things which are way beyond the reach of the Mueller report, which was done within very narrow parameters under the eagle gaze of Rod Rosenstein and later the sequence of Whitaker and now the even more compromised Bill Barr. Uh, It seems to me that that 
we have a problem that is way beyond anything that the Mueller report investigated. And it always worried me that people kept who kept saying, wait for the Mueller report, wait for the Mueller report, were waiting really for a kind of you know, deus ex machina that was never going to arrive. We now, unfortunately, have a nation, many of whose people are convinced that the Mueller report, as Barr falsely told them, exonerated the president. It did well, nothing of the sort. But when they think that, and when you have a president who every day does something else that is unthinkable for a president to do, people have developed pretty thick skin. It's going to take a lot to move public opinion in a direction that makes even McConnell sit up and take notice. Well, McConnell seems to have his own series of issues evolving uh, at the right. moment. I mean, yes, exactly. I mean, that aluminum plant in Kentucky that was put in there, I, I, I think that McConnell and his wife are so profoundly conflicted by China, by Russia, by, by North Korea. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty staggering. Well, yeah, I mean, it's staggering. You know, some, sometimes it all happens so fast we don't break it down. But, you know, right. Oleg Deripaska was the client of Paul Manafort, who's sitting in Rikers Island for manifold crimes. The, the administration saw fit to reward Oleg Deripaska uh, subsequent to all of those convictions. And Oleg right. Deripaska saw fit to reward Mitch McConnell with this plant subsequent to all of that. And yet, right. not a and the hint. The plant is in Kentucky and it supposedly provides jobs for Kentucky. I mean, it's all such a deep, tangled pit that it's very entanglement makes it harder for the American people to take it seriously. Everybody sort of shrugs and says, oh my God, I know they're all criminals, but all I care about is whether they give me, you know, some benefit. It's terrible. I mean, it really is. It would be the death of democracy if we didn't take this seriously. Well, in some respects, you know, uh, one of the things we talk about often on the show and and Rosa, who I assume is still circling someplace, um, uh, is one of the primary uh, uh, proponents of is is that we is that we take a, a, a different kind of look at the Constitution because we tend to view it as though it were carved in stone and handed down on the top of Mount Sinai. And, and of course, there are elements of the Constitution that are flawed, and we could enumerate many of them. You've, you've made a career identifying those things. But, but one of them is this. There is a principle, no one is above the law, which actually is not supported by the Constitution if the President of the United States is supported by a third plus one of the United States Senate. No, it's very sad. I mean, the notion that no one is above the law, that no one is a judge in his own case, that the rule of law and not the rule of men is the guiding principle. All of those things become empty and hollow slogans if we don't put flesh on the bones and if we don't actually enforce the law. I mean, I have never been a fan of the Office of Legal Counsel opinion going back to 1973 that says a sitting president is not indictable. That seems to me to be very dubious. But if he's not indictable, he certainly has to be impeachable on the basis of things other than the unilateral say-so of the president as to what can be released. I mean, I'm I'm delighted to have heard that today it appears, though I don't want to jump to conclusions, 
it appears that Bill Barr, rather than face impeachment by the face a contempt citation by the House of Representatives, has finally agreed to release the underlying material in the Mueller report. That's great. But that's only the beginning. It's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, they are being dragged, kicking and screaming inch by inch into the arena. And they plan to drag it out until the 2020 election is immediately upon us. And then they'll say, what's the point? We're almost done. We're almost there. And I, I do worry that the notion that we can just count on the next election to solve everything is, is a grand illusion. It seems to me that there are all sorts of problems there. I mean, if it's so close that we need to contest certain results, Trump will claim that we have no right to contest them. But if he needs to contest them, or even if he doesn't, but chooses to, he will drag it out. He will fabricate, if he has to, a national emergency the way he did to seize the power of the purse, to build his silly wall on the southern border. We don't know what will happen in the next election, especially if it's not so overwhelming uh, as to be a dramatic and uncontestable repudiation of the president. Yeah, well, and, and you know, on top of that, one of the things that we know as a consequence of his obstruction and his denial of the universal conclusion of the Russian attack and its nature uh, is that we haven't taken any real steps to preclude another such attack. That's uh, right. and, th and that, it seems to me, is itself an impeachable offense, an extreme dereliction of duty, compromising the national security of the United States, ultimately as an exercise in vanity, I mean, he doesn't want to acknowledge the role of the Russians, which he would have to do in order to seriously energize an effort to keep them from doing it all over again and worse, because that casts a cloud on the legitimacy of his presidency. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the most legitimate of them all? You know, the guy who calls himself a stable genius just cannot see fit to protect the United States of America to whose constitution he has taken an oath. Yeah, and well, there, there, there is that. You know, one other point, you, you touched upon it a little bit earlier, but I think it's worth expanding upon, and then we, we've only got about uh, 10 more minutes, so I, I don't wanna sure. move to some of the practicalities of this, but but one of the, the points that, that I think is important is that, and bears repeating, is that the standard for the impeachment hearing is different from the standard that was either accepted by Mueller or was imposed by Barr, and that the, the narrow definition of U.S. criminal code is not what is salient here. The, it is the conclusion of the House, which is given the power to draw this conclusion, that something characterizable as a high crime or something characterizable as a misdemeanor took place, and that there is some considerable latitude. So, you know, the, I think the Trump team, for example, thought they were very clever in fostering the idea that this was all about collusion, which was not actually a legal term, and that let them frame the debate as they wanted to. But the reality is that there, this is a bit of a double-edged sword, because there is a case to be made if there were hundreds of interactions and a Russian offer and a Trump acceptance in a public venue and then Trump defense afterwards, that collusion did take place by not by legal standard, a conspiracy 
to you know against the United States, but by um, by by a higher standard, uh, and 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 therefore the the president um, could be impeached for things that he might not be convicted of by the Justice Department. Well, there's no question about that. One of the things that is clearest and agreed upon by maybe 99.9% of all scholars of the Constitution is that something might not be a federal crime and yet might be a high crime and misdemeanor. There was no federal criminal code at the beginning. Federal crimes are a quite limited and special category. But for example, using the pardon power to pardon all of your allies, but not your enemies directing the Department of Justice never to prosecute somebody who's given you a contribution. You know, those are things that are not federal crimes as such, but they're obviously abuses of power and abuses of power that rise to high crimes and misdemeanors. And the conspiracy collusion confusion is really one of them. I mean, the federal law of conspiracy is very specialized. You have to have a meeting of the minds and certain kinds of agreements. But when an American president wannabe says out in broad daylight, Russia, if you have the emails, I think that we would be mightily happy, you know, and then he gets the email dumped through WikiLeaks, which was connected to Russia that afternoon. That may not be conspiracy, but it sure as hell is what the framers clearly had in mind about presidents becoming head of the American government with the help of hostile foreign powers. So when the president says no obstruction, no collusion, that's just a lie. He was aided in it by Bill Barr, but the report didn't conclude there was no obstruction, only that the proof of obstruction might not meet the criminal standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It certainly didn't conclude there was no collusion, It said, on the contrary, we haven't talked about collusion because the federal criminal statute doesn't criminalize collusion, only conspiracy. So we have been fed a bill of goods that I just desperately hope the American people are smart enough not not to buy. Well, it's also, you know, interesting in terms of the collusion thing that, you know, just for example, in 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 and and I'm not an attorney, as I've, I've I've demonstrated clearly in this conversation. But but in in the in 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 obstruction, for example, I understand that one needs a certain kind of pattern of behavior. But you know, as one looks at the uh, the idea of collusion or the idea of a uh, impeachable high crime taking place here, there is a pattern of behavior. There was not only the president on camera asking for that assistance. There were. Hundred plus meetings that took place uh, that had some kind of objective similar to that in mind. Uh, there were later meetings afterwards in which the the you know there was uh, the the sort of the reward side of the quid pro quo discussed. Then there was obstruction and denial on top of that, and and you can't take these you know from a criminal statute point of view you may have to take these things out of out of context. But from the point of view of this kind of impeachment hearing, the context is everything, right? The pattern would be everything. That's that's right. And there's an important connection between the obstruction and the collusion. I mean, just take, for example, this bizarre stuff about Manafort giving detailed polling data about the swing states of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and the like to Kalimnik in Russia. 
I mean, you can be sure that the reason the Russians wanted to know all that stuff was not their intense curiosity about American demographic patterns. They were, through WikiLeaks, then helping the Trump campaign design its strategy for keeping Democrats and minorities away from the polls on Election Day. But we don't know that. And why don't we know it? Because the president dangled pardons in front of Manafort, so he hid the content of his of of his conversations with Kalimnik from Mueller. Mueller himself made clear in the report, which sadly not that many people have read in full or carefully, that but for some of the evidence of obstruction, we might well know much more about not only collusion but criminal conspiracy, for heaven's sake. Right, but, but right when you say evidence of obstruction in in the first part. He, he talks about the, the the people who didn't cooperate, didn't testify, didn't provide right. evidence, destroyed evidence. And so, you know, all of those sort of fruits of obstruction uh, or or efforts at obstruction led to an incomplete picture of what actually took place. That's right. Uh, That's right. Uh, and that is the picture that it, a real impeachment inquiry can get to the bottom of. But it has to start immediately. Well, I, I agree with you on that. And and in the final kind of five minutes we've got here, you know, I, I'm frustrated as as I sense you are from reading some of what you've said and what you've just said um, with the Democrats who fear somehow a backlash. And, you know, the evidence is, is it, again, if you go back to past cases, suggests that that's not actually what happens. 19 percent of Americans supported impeachment prior to the impeachment hearings, a majority supported it after the in, impeachment in, hearings. In the Nixon case. In the, in the Nixon case, example, right. ex exactly. Um, and if the case is proceeded, is, is structured as you talk about, first we're gonna do an inquiry, then we're gonna decide how we handle the inquiry. And if it is broader in its scope, as we've discussed, and if it is meticulous, and if the president's um, team is given a chance to uh, defend themselves in it. And at the end of the day, what you're actually doing is making a case um, uh, to the American people in the court of public opinion and the facts weigh against the president. How could that conceivably benefit him in the context of the election? Uh, and mightn't it also undermine those senators who would seek to do what you refer to in the article as a, as a whitewash? Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. It seems to me that the lessons people have drawn from some of the earlier history are wrong. It's true that Andrew Johnson was narrowly by one vote acquitted in the Senate, but his impeachment effectively reversed his terrible attempts basically to reinstate the Confederacy. The impeachment of Clinton, some people say, you know, that really enhanced his popularity. Yeah, but it made it a lot harder uh, for Gore to win the next time, and it really put the Republicans in, in charge of both houses at the next national uh, election. It seems to me that people are wrong to assume that the politics will redound to the president's benefit. He's trying to make them think that he would love to be impeached, which he says every now and then, but sometimes he says, no, impeachment is a dirty word. But I don't care what the president wants. The Constitution requires holding him to account and we should not lightly assume that it will help him to be held to account. I think the politics and 
principle both actually point in the same direction here, and I am very much hoping that Speaker Pelosi recognizes and acts on that sooner rather than later. Well, I guess the the final question is, you know, what if they don't? You know, what do you think the constitutional message is or the message is to um, this president and subsequent presidents if the approach that they've taken, which is to obstruct, to dangle pardons, to use the power of the Department of Justice, to use power that may exist in the Senate to block any future conviction, um, actually work. And the president of the United States is allowed to collaborate with a foreign enemy to gain office, uh, obstruct justice to cover up for the crimes that are done, and utilize the power of the office to protect him for from prosecution from a whole host of other wrongs, ranging from violations of the Emoluments Clause to granting security clearances to the people who don't deserve it. Well, the lesson for the future will be a president can get away with murder, just as this president said he could if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue. That's not a lesson I want my children and my grandchildren to take with them into the future. It's not a lesson I think we should teach ourselves. I think we still have it within our power to make our history more forward-looking than that. Well, I, I, I certainly hope you're right, and I certainly hope the message of this generation of leaders is not finally that the president is above the law if he can engineer it to be above the law, um, and that the Constitution contains loopholes that you can work like you might work loopholes in the tax code. Uh, certainly your efforts uh, and your voice are important to that. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us uh, for the writing and the good work you're doing. Hopefully we'll uh, be able to talk to you again in the future um, and, and, and perhaps in somewhat better times. Hope so, David. I think the times could hardly, could hardly be worse, and I think we really need to work hard to make them better. Well, thank you very much. Uh, to all those of you out there, uh, we're going to keep on these issues, of course, future discussions even this week. For more, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Uh, look for upcoming uh, podcasts, and, uh, 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 and while you're at it, uh, consider becoming a member of uh, the DSR Network. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.